welcome back to the Like a Bigfoot podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. Um, you know, there's a lot of events or uh, endurance races out there that kind of like are advertised as like the world's hardest race, world's toughest event, all of that kind of stuff. Um, just based off the description, I think the event that we talk about in this week's episode um, this snowman race in Bhutan truly might be one of the world's toughest races around. Essentially, it's a five-day stage race uh, covering 126 miles in the Himalayan mountains. So the average elevation is 14,000 feet. And just to give you guys an idea, if you're not 100% sure like what that even means... The tallest mountains in uh, the continental U.S. are 14,000 feet. Like the tallest mountains in Colorado and California, Washington, like those ginormous mountains are for, top out at 14,000 feet. This race has the average elevation of 14,000 and uh, even at one point goes up to about 18,000 feet. And when I was talking to Ashley about this, uh, Ashley Winchester, today's guest, an amazing athlete, uh, ultra endurance mountain athlete, has all sorts of FKTs, all sorts of stuff. Like I have two pages of notes here and we didn't even get through the second page at all. But uh, but an awesome, awesome human being. Uh, she hosts the podcast Women of the Wild. Um, and when I was talking to Ashley about her experience, um, and I was just trying to picture what it would be like. And I was trying to picture what it would be like to be at 18 or almost 18,000 feet. I think it's like 17,946. But being that high up, like the highest you've ever been. And then looking around and seeing mountains that are even taller than you still. Like you're in a valley. Like that is completely mind-blowing. Um, but then also to be out there doing this race because uh, of a reason much bigger than than yourself and much bigger than all of us really um, basically to go out and experience the effects of climate change to this country um, so just to give you a little history really quick and of course Ashley's going to explain all this um, the king of Bhutan designed this event invited some athletes out uh, to take on the snowman trek, which is this trail in Bhutan takes people a long time, usually when they're hiking it or backpacking it. Um, and these athletes were going to attempt to do it in five days, a five day stage race. Um, but really with the ultimate purpose that he would bring in all these people from all around the world, they would see the effects of climate change firsthand and be able to go back and talk about it and, you know, talk to, their communities and talk to podcasts and and other people interviewing them about this really unique ultra marathon um but also get to kind of like talk about the crisis that we're really all going through um and so that was the ultimate purpose and just based off of the conversation with ashley like i know it affected her on a deeply personal level like the whole thing like going out and and exploring and seeing this and all of that and I'm super honored to bring her on the podcast I think this is a really unique story a really unique ultra marathon if you're someone who 
loves hearing about hundred milers and, and things like that, you're going to love it. But if you're someone that just is interested in travel or these bigger picture ideas or really how someone, um, what someone's experience is like when they're doing something really, really outside their comfort zone. Like not only are you traveled halfway around the world, but you're also physically pushing yourself to limits that you've never even imagined before. And that's what this podcast is about. And I'm super excited to share it. Uh, really excited for you guys to tune in. If you've never heard of this race, I just heard about it when it was happening in October and, and kind of following along with some of the uh, athletes, Instagrams and stuff like that. Um, check it out. It's called the Snowman Race. Uh, it's in Bhutan. It seems incredibly challenging. And all the athletes that show up uh, are there because they have a special invite um, from the King of Bhutan, which is, I mean, that just makes it stand out right there. So uh, let's get into it. This is the Like a Bigfoot podcast with someone I'm very excited to talk with, Ashley Winchester. You just got back from this crazy stage race. Like, you know, Ashley, you know how some races advertise like this is the hardest race in the world? Like <laughs> yeah. legitimately after reading about this thing, I'm like, that is the hardest race in the world. Like it has to be. It It is. It was, and it was like touted as the toughest race in the world. And you're kind of like, well, is it really? But then <laughs> when you're in it, you're like, yeah, this has got to be the toughest race in the world. And believe me, I was surrounded by athletes who have done things like uh, the Marathon de Saab or Saab yeah. list or however you say that. Yeah. Tour de Jean. Um, the Barkley marathons. I mean, like all of these athletes, world-class athletes who have done all these, the hardest races in the world. Right. And they're all like, no, this is definitely the hardest race. In the yeah. world. They're like the snowman race in Bhutan, yeah. which is a stage race. So you have to give us all the details, but like, man, yeah. Can you just tell us really quick, like, tell me why it's the hardest race in the world? Because you already have, you've already won me over on how hard this is. <laughs> yeah um so it's the elevation honestly yeah. it's elevation and conditions and you know this year it, it's in the kingdom of bhutan which is a tiny country that's kind of like sandwiched in between um uh like india and china and, um and it's got you know part of the himalaya mountains running through it and so the stage race actually takes place on a route called the snowman track. And the snowman track is a, a route that was traditionally used by um, like horsemen to move horses, to move people, to bring goods into these tiny communities that are located way out in the highlands of, of the Himalayas. And so it's, it's not a trail. It's not like a, the, Pacific Crest Trail or anything like that. It's it's not manicured. It is a straight up horse trail. And so it's braided, you know, there's just trails that kind of go everywhere. Um, it's really incredibly muddy and super rocky. But then on top of that, um, it's all above like 12,000 feet. And so the high point is actually just under 18,000 feet. It's like 17,900 and something. And so it's yeah, the altitude is, is extreme. And because you're at those kind of extreme altitudes, you also experience 
pretty extreme weather. And so, you know, it's not just like every day is predictable and sunny. You know, you have these crazy storms that roll in out of nowhere that can't really be predicted. Yeah. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just so challenging. You're also like, you're not only, you know, racing at those elevations, but you're also sleeping at those elevations. The first camp, the first day by itself was like 28 miles with over 10,000 feet of elevation gain. And you go up to an elevation of 16,500 feet, and then you sleep there <laughs> on the first night. And so it is, it's insanely difficult. And there were, um, there is a field of, uh, gosh, how many international athletes were there? There were eight Bhutanese athletes. And then, um, let me do the math. <laughs> that was actually going to be my next question was just like, who shows up to this thing? You know, like, <laughs> This is like uh, almost like one of those like sports movies where there's like an underground whatever. And then it's just like you have to be there by like invite only. Like it sounds like that where like the most like incredible athletes in the world are going to show up to this. Like, it's, yeah, it, yeah, it totally was invite only um, because there's I mean, you not only have to be able to like actually survive at those altitudes, you kind of have yeah. to have a resume that says that you're able to be at those altitudes, yeah. you've experienced those altitudes, um, but also a resume of kind of like surviving in the outdoors, like these multi-day adventures, because it's a, like you said, it's a stage race, so it's five days long. And the further you get into the race, the more remote you get until um, like day three, night three, you are so far out there that it's like an eight day hike out. Um, so yeah, it's, it's insane. The snowman track too, um, is like, it's a trek that's starting to be done by more tourists and okay. trekking companies are starting to get on board. And, um, it's usually done in like 24 to 30 days. And so we're doing it in five days for the snowman race. <laughs> so you imagine like you have to have a special kind of athlete for that. Yeah. Um, and then on top of it, the athlete has to be willing to, um, so the, let me backtrack a little bit. The reason the snowman race is put on is to, um, bring awareness to the climate emergency that's happening in Bhutan. I mean, Bhutan is, um, you know, it's this tiny country sandwiched in between the world's biggest polluters. And they are, I think one of three carbon neutral or carbon negative countries in the world. And they're experiencing the worst of climate change. Um, I mean, they're experiencing uh, glacier lake outburst floods, which are, you know, the glaciers are melting super fast. They create these lakes down um, at the foot of the glacier. That lake bursts through the moraine of rock that's holding it in place. And you get these flash floods out of nowhere. And Bhutan's like, people who live up in the highlands are at such high risk from those flash floods because they live in these basins and you know like near glaciers um and actually one of the one of the athletes who was there one of the Bhutanese athletes she's um from the small uh, community called Laya way up in the mountains um it's at an elevation of like 14,000 feet she's a yak herder and she lost a ton of family members to one of these glacier lake outburst floods like yeah. it is very real and so the reason um the 
king of Bhutan actually wanted to put this race on was to bring more awareness to what's going on there. Um, so athletes have to go to Bhutan as um, willing to be kind of advocates, ambassadors um, for the country once they leave, because you know they, they want us to go out there and experience and see these changes um, firsthand. And then yeah. be able to bring that home with us and kind of go like, this is a serious emergency. Um, so athletes not only have to have the background and the ability to part, like participate in the race, but also the willingness to come away as an ambassador. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's an interesting uh, sort of resume that you have to have to yeah. get into the race. Yeah, well, it's interesting, like, I mean, even you just saying Glacier Lake outburst floods, like, it totally makes sense. I just had never heard of those, you know, like, I'm sure a lot of people listening are like, I didn't even know that was a thing. But to imagine like, you have a house or a sit like a town for years and years and years, and there's a big glacier nearby. And it's, it's just there. And all of a sudden, that glacier turns into a lake. And then all of a sudden, you have to worry about whether or not that lake is just going to flood and just w completely wash out your whole entire city just yeah. randomly like you wouldn't know when it was coming like that is terrifying and it's horrible and it's something i've never even thought of so um yeah i think i mean that is obviously like i as i was researching the race you know um it was part of it that was fascinating to me but i'm like that is such a good idea to actually get people out there and to like see this uh, crisis happening yeah well and, and bhutan you know they they've been so closed off from the world um and they're such a small country like most of the time almost every single time when i said oh i'm going to bhutan or oh i went to bhutan people are like where yeah where's that yeah what is that so i have to explain where it is and who they are and and all of this stuff and so bhutan you know, they're kind of just like screaming into the dark. They're going, they're like, this is happening here and it's a huge problem and nobody's listening because, you know, <laughs> they're small. There's like 700,000 yeah. people in the whole country. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're small. They are, um, there's all these, you know, other crazy things that are obviously happening in the world. And so I think, I think it was kind of brilliant of them to bring all of these athletes and people in to get involved in this, see things firsthand. That makes us care as athletes. And that makes us want to spread the message. And, you know, once we care, maybe other people will, will care a little yeah. bit too. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and then, you're, you're making like personal connections with people there and, you know, everything I've heard, I, I, I'm pretty sure my in-laws went there a few years ago, um, just as tourists, basically. Um, and I remember reading about it then and just hearing that it's like one of the happiest countries of in the world and like peaceful countries in the world and things like that. And now you get a chance to meet people face to face. And of course, like you're going to want to bring it back and, and help them in any way, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it was, it was a life-changing experience. Um, not just because, you know, it wasn't just the race. Like, honestly, the race was such a small blip of the amount of time that we spent there and what we experienced there. And we really immersed ourselves and got immersed in the, 
in the culture and the people and got to know not just like really important government officials. Like we, you know, we met with the foreign minister and, and got to know him really well. We had audience with his majesty, the king, um, multiple times. And awesome. it was, it was amazing. And that's really, really special. But even more than that, you know, we connected with the locals, with the, yeah. the, you know, the civilians, the, the people who live and work there every single day. And even to the point where, um, like I actually, after the race, I made the decision to extend my visa there for a little bit longer. So I could attend the Royal, um, Highland festival and at the Royal Highland festival, you know, a small group of us stayed, like lived with this family up in the town, the community of Laia for a few days and got to experience how they live their lives every day. And, you know, it's, it's so different from us and it's so eye-opening and it's, you know, they're just all of these people who are living in these tiny communities and they're so at risk up there from, from climate change and, um, it just, it's, it's really eye opening. Yeah. I, it's funny, like what you're mentioning. I just, uh, had an awesome conversation with my friend Sabrina on, on this podcast. And we were talking about travel and she brought up this point that I've never thought of. Maybe it's just cause I'm a dumb dumb or something, but I'm just like, I never thought of it this way, but like she was mentioning how travel allows you to get that other perspective just about how people live you know we get all stuck in our own world of like how we're living and it's sometimes it's really hard to even remember that people live in different ways and that it's possible to live in different ways um so was there anything in uh in bhutan that you took like you're trying to take home with you that was like a different perspective you got based on just how people were living out there Oh man, we have it so cushy here. We, <laughs> yeah. we are we are so spoiled here. Like, so for example, when I was staying up in Laia with this, you know, Bhutanese family, they live a very traditional lifestyle. Um, you know, they they herd yaks up there, they collect um cordyceps, uh, which is a type of fungus that's used in uh, like medicine, you find cordyceps in all sorts of um, like mushroom elixirs kind of a thing, mushroom teas. Yeah. Um, and so they collect these cordyceps, which um, takes a lot of time. And it's actually quite dangerous because they have to go wandering up into these high, you know, mountain areas. Um, but they were actually one of the most wealthy families in the community. But they still, you know, they they're cooking on a camp stove and on a wood burning stove. Um, you know, they don't the only heat that they have in their house is their wood burning stove. And there were there are actually three rooms in the house. The main room that they use, um, they, you know, eat there, they cook there, they sleep there, um, you know, and they all sleep in the same room as a the family. There's no furniture. Um, there's three main rooms in the house. The like big room in the entryway was sort of like where the guests would be or where they would have any kind of like celebrations. Um, the Bhutanese have a lot of auspicious days and they have gatherings. 
Um, and so that's kind of what that room is reserved for. And then they have the sort of family room where they live, eat, sleep, and, you know, a husband, wife, and their two children all sleep, you know, in this pile of blankets on the floor. There's no mattress. It's like a carpet and then a pile of blankets. Yeah. And then the third room was pretty much like the altar room. It's where they do their uh, worshiping and, you know, prayer and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, even though they're like the wealthiest family there, they're also, you know, living a very, very simple and a very hard life. Um, you know, it's at 14,000 feet. <laughs> they're, they're herding yaks for a living. You know, they survive off of like yaks milk and, and rice and chili peppers, <laughs> you know, yeah. everything else has to be imported on horseback for like 16 miles. It's insane. And so seeing that kind of way of life and comparing it to how we live, it's, it, it's just kind of, like wow we have it we have it really good we have so many amenities um like we're really spoiled yeah yeah no that's yeah i mean i think and what a perspective to to get you know like so you can appreciate those things a lot more and i've always found that like obviously like travel and adventure there's a lot of things that crisscross which is why i like that and most of the time traveling is an adventure but that's one thing too is just that appreciation when you return home for what you actually have you know like when you're out in the wilderness for like seven or eight days and you haven't really showered and then you actually finally get that first shower you're like ah showers they're the best like that kind of thing and i think traveling like can bring you similar perspectives for what you are able to have every single day that you know like we all just take for granted yeah absolutely yeah. there were multiple places where you know there was no warm shower yeah you had to you know they had to boil water in the kitchen for you to have like warm water so you could yeah. give yourself a sponge bath kind yeah. of thing yeah, yeah and so yeah i mean you know there's there's no heat in the homes no <laughs> yeah um it's yeah it's it's very different but i have to say fourteen thousand feet so i mean so i read through your post about your race and i when you wrote camp one 16,000 feet i just wrote that down with a whole bunch of exclamation points like that's crazy i've never been at 16,000 feet i don't know what that feels like let alone in a tent trying to sleep after a 20 some mile day like that's crazy like how do you even attempt to train for something like this in the united states here we don't have those well, obligations. <laughs> I actually didn't have a lot of time to train going into this race. I found out about the race um, mid-August. Okay. And how did you find out about it? <laughs> um, through Jason, pretty much. Um, he, I was, where was I? I was out of town. I think I was guiding a backpacking trip, and I get this message from him that's like. Bhutan question mark exclamation <laughs> mark and I'm like what are you talking about yeah and then I I hear from the uh international athlete manager of the snowman race um who messaged me and said are you interested in doing this race and I had never actually heard of it before and I was like who is this guy and this race has to be fake like it can't be real right like I'm being invited to Bhutan um and you know they're covering you know, room and board pretty much. And I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. 
Um, but researching it, I actually was like, wow, this is, this is real. And of course I'm going to go to Bhutan. You know, if you get an yeah. invitation to go to Bhutan, you go to Bhutan. Yeah. Um, and I actually, like, I knew where the country was and, and sort of like a little bit about it because I knew some people in the past that had gone to Bhutan. And so it was one of those countries at the back of my mind that I was always like, yeah, someday maybe, yeah. um, maybe I'll make it there. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it was a, it was an easy yes for me to yeah I'll go to Bhutan and then I had about five weeks of training um in order to prep for the race which is not enough <laughs> <laughs> it's not enough training for this race like you really have to dedicate like a good six months at least um of training on top of some really amazing base fitness in order to yeah really be prepared for a race like this um but several of us the athletes the international athletes, we were actually sleeping in hypoxico tents. And oh, okay. So, yeah. Was and that so, recommended or was that just something like everyone kind of decided was probably a good idea? Most, a lot of us decided to do it on our own. And then we all ended up talking and we we're like, oh yeah, me too. I'm definitely sleeping in an altitude tent. Um, just because, you know, not all of us live at 10,000 no. feet or 10,000 plus, even if you live at 10,000 feet, once you get up to 16 or 18,000 feet, like, that's not enough. It's that's not the enough thing. I, so I did one race kind of at elevation and you're going to be like, that's not even elevation compared to this, but I live in De like the Denver area. So we're like 5,000, whatever. And everyone's like, you live in Colorado, you should be fine. And as soon as you jump to like 12,000 feet at any time, like I've hiked, you know, in the mountains and stuff, anything above 12,000 feet is a game changer for me. And, yeah. and yeah, like if you're at 10,000 feet, 14,000, 16,000, like that's going to feel completely different. Like that's wild. It gets exponentially harder yeah. the higher you go up. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, you know, we all, a lot of us trained in, in hypoxico tents and I would actually take my hypoxico machine and hook it up to a mask and wear the mask and get on the bike trainer and like, you yeah. know, train at altitude, sort of. Um, and, you know, at least with decreased oxygen levels. Yeah. And try and get my body to produce the red blood cells in order to be able to acclimate really well up there. But the thing is, is, you know, you can sleep in a hypoxico tent um, your whole life and yeah. still suffer from acute altitude sickness or. Um, you know, high altitude pulmonary edema or cerebral edema, like it doesn't stop those things from happening. And so, you know, you can do all the prep and still actually end up with some major health issues up at altitude. And that's always kind of hit and miss too. Yeah. Was, uh, were you like able to crank your tent? Like, I, I don't know how the tents work. Are you able to, like, be like, crank it up. We're going to be <laughs> above 14,000 feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, Usually with the tents, you start off um, at an elevation that your body can sort of handle. Because if you're sleeping in these tents or under these tents, then, um, you know, that's recovery time in between yeah. your training. And sleep yeah. is super important. So you have to be able to balance, you know, sleeping at high altitude and recovering really well and making sure you get good sleep. When you're sleeping at high altitude, it's hard to get good sleep. Like, you know... I, you wake up gasping for breath sometimes. So you, your heart is pounding really hard and it keeps you up. 
Um, so you have to kind of start off at a lowish elevation and work your way up over weeks. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely, I think I, I spent a lot of the summer, um, around 9,000 feet or above. And so I felt pretty comfortable sleeping at around 10,000 feet. I think that's where I started the machine off. And, um, I actually used my Koros watch to keep an eye on my blood oxygen levels during, you know, like I would check my blood oxygen levels when I went to bed. If I woke up in the middle of the night, I'm checking my blood oxygen levels. I check it in the first thing in the morning and making sure that, you know, it's not going too low. Um, and that it's like somewhere in a place where it will benefit my body. And yeah, you know, that's usually like around in the low, low nineties or upper. 80s. Okay. Yeah. Um, you want that balance. Like you're challenging yourself, but you don't want to like not be recovering because of it. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Cause you need to be able to train the next day too. Yeah. If you're getting crappy sleep. <laughs> it's hard to train the next day. And when that goes on for weeks on end. Yeah. Yeah. You're not really like making a lot of good changes yeah, <laughs> there. Um, you might sense. be acclimating to the altitude, but you're not recovering and you're overtraining or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard, but yeah, you kind of crank up the, the elevation as the weeks go by. And so I think I ended up sleeping around 16,000 feet pretty regularly okay. in the last couple of weeks that I was in the altitude tent. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about like just what day one of that race was like well actually i also want to know how many people did it total uh there were uh 29 athletes okay total. okay yeah and so what's the start <laughs> line like you're meeting each other and you're like what did we get ourselves into like is that yeah, going on so we actually we all um we all arrived in bangkok thailand um around the same time and then we all took the same flight over to bhutan to paro Bhutan. And, and um, that was like a week before the race. Okay. And so for the week before the race, we're actually like getting to know each other because we're an athlete team, right? We're not, we're not there as individuals. We're there as a team. We're, yeah. we're there with like this collective um, desire to, you know, help out Bhutan to complete this race not a lot of people on the international athlete team came over with this, like, I'm going to win it no matter what mindset, you know, we're all there to experience, to enjoy, to learn. Um, and so we got to know each other really, really well in the week before the race. And, you know, we had all these like cultural experiences that, um, they set up for us and, um, it was just a lot of fun. And then, you know, arrive at the start line and by that time we'd had enough of the cultural experiences to kind of know what to expect at the start line um the the Bhutanese people are very fond of um ceremony and so there was this whole ceremony before the start of the race and so you know we're up at 4 a.m the race is supposed to start at 6 a.m we get to the start line at like 4 30 or ish right before five. And then there's like 45 minutes of, you know, of ceremony beforehand. But the start is at this, um, it's a fortress. Uh, and their, their fortresses are also like monasteries and it's, they're called Zongs, D-Z-O-N-G. And so this town is called Gaza and the start was at the Zong. So we were at the Gaza Zong and, um, 
you know, we arrive and there's all these monks chatting or ch- chanting, sorry. There's all these monks chanting, yeah, praying for us, for health, for the weather to clear, for, you know, they they want good weather they want health they want everybody to just yeah. finish you know in a healthy way whether they're dropping out or um you know <laughs> whatever happens they just wanted good health good weather so they're they're chanting for us and then you know they have these big tents set up all of the athletes sit under this big tent they have this whole like procession moves through you know there's like holy water there's uh horns and you know music and stuff like that government officials come through and then um they called our names one by one and we one by one made our way to the start line down this you know path with these colorful flags on either side and you know it's just it was it was an experience that's cool um the most memorable race start I think oh it I've has to be had. just you yeah. describing it i'm like easily the most memorable <laughs> yeah it like gives me chills talking about it because it's just like it was it it was so cool um yeah. and then you know we, we're all at the start line and they fire off the gun and and we take off running and um this was the first snowman race ever and so for this iteration um starting at the gods of zong there was about 20 kilometers of um like a road running okay um on just like gravel road the four-wheel drive road um and it had been raining for like a week before the race start so it was like it was muddy but it's fairly runnable yeah um so you run along this road and then the road dead ends and turns into this like narrow horse trail and it was it was so muddy. It's so <laughs> muddy. It's just like standing water and mud and slippery round rocks. I yeah. Mean, You're like yeah, ice skating no... basically up the road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On like really uneven ice. <laughs> um, so yeah, major uh tripping slash ankle rolling hazards there. Yeah. Um but so yeah, and then you're you're on this super muddy but crazy beautiful. Oh, your Um, pictures on your, your blog you wrote, I was just blown away. I'm like, these don't even look real. This place looks unreal. That's how it feels when you're there too. Even like, I can't even imagine. Yeah. You go from like rainforest to high Alpine and all in one day, you know, and you just take this sharp turn and you start climbing up this (laughs) steep, steep, um, muddy, rocky terrain. And you know, you just, there's plants around you that you don't recognize. There's animals around that you don't recognize. You know, there's, um, it's, there are people, there were people along the trail who were, um, handing out like candy and stuff like that, just of their own, of their own accord. They just decided to go out there and like help us out. I got this like box of juice of this like mango juice called fruity (laughs) and it was the best thing i'd ever had in my life (laughs) i loved it so i was obsessed with that juice while i was in Bhutan. yeah Um, but yeah and then you know you kind of you just keep climbing and climbing and climbing and all of a sudden there's these massive snowy mountains in your view and you're running along these like beautiful glacial glacial rivers and glacial valleys and and then it gets really real and you start getting up into the high altitude stuff and it's yeah. like mud and altitude and 
you know, the weather's starting to turn a little. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you just keep climbing and climbing and climbing. And then you reach about 16,000 feet and you're sustained there for a few miles until you get to camp. And um, it was just, yeah. I mean, I would say I've spent a lot of time in the mountains um, and I've gone from, you know, super low elevation to high elevation plenty of times, but the Himalayas are just different. Yeah. <laughs> They're just different. You just feel so tiny out there. Well, because um, being at 16,000 feet, you still have peak, like you're not at the top. It's not like you're at the top at 16,000 feet. Yeah. You're surrounded by 19 and 20,000. <laughs> That's so crazy. Up there. And you're like, what is going on? Or like yeah. taller peaks than that. Um, there's a, there's actually an unclimbed, the tallest unclimbed peak in the world is in Bhutan. Okay. And it's like 24,000 feet something like that it's huge but yeah uh mountaineering in bhutan is illegal above six thousand meters so above like nineteen thousand feet okay and so there are tons of unclimbed peaks there and it's incredible like you just looking around going nobody's ever been there nobody's ever been there <laughs> like you know it's just true wilderness that's oh my gosh this is selling me on going to bhutan by the way like this yeah. sounds amazing. Um, and your picture, or I think it was uh, Byron Powell, right? Was he Brian, out there? Was yeah, Brian. Sorry, why did I say Byron? That's like I don't know. You, you know, it's funny because I've always I've always seen it that way in my head too. It's like written, always... right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for giving me Brian Powell. Yeah, of Iron Far. He was actually the um, camp chief, sort okay. of uh, for Camp One. Well, because you put one of his pictures of camp one on your blog. And I'm like, that is the coolest looking camp and the coolest picture ever. Like that's, yeah. it just looked unbelievable. And yeah, I just, I trying to like, it'd be weird because you want to appreciate the beauty around you, but you're suffering and you're seeing other people. And I know you mentioned at one point someone was struggling and you kind of had to help them along because really like you're each other's support system out there. That's what I love about stage races too, is you're, you end up becoming this like weird little family traveling through the wilderness together, which is really, really cool. But, but yeah, so you have all of that going on and it must be hard to kind of even take a moment to like, take it all in. Yeah. Especially, I mean, you know, you're halfway into a 28 mile day and you're, <laughs> 6,000 feet of gain or 7,000 feet of gain in and you're having a hard time breathing and you're kind of like a little, you know, pretty suffery, suffer pesty yeah. yeah. <laughs> at that point. And you just kind of, yeah, I mean, sometimes you just have to stop and look around and really appreciate where you are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I did actually on day one, um, I held back in the first 20 kilometers of that um, road run. Cause I didn't want to go out too fast. Right. I have five days of yeah. this stuff. And so I held back, um, ended up catching up to a runner, um, before we got to the first or the second army checkpoint at this, um, it's in this glacier Valley that is called Rodofu. And it's right before you start the super steep climb up to the, you know, 16 plus thousand foot, um, pass. And, I caught up to him maybe a mile or two before that checkpoint and he was struggling like really hard and I was worried about him. 
And he said that he, he lost his inhaler. And so I'm like, oh gosh, you know, I have dexamethasone with me because I'm a mountain guide (laughs) and I, you know, I, I like to carry emergency drugs with me when I'm up in the mountains and a lot of mountain guides that you'll meet will be the same way. And so I, I had a steroid with me and I didn't feel comfortable leaving him behind watching the way he was breathing. And so I just stayed with him until we got to the army checkpoint and stayed with him until he decided to drop from the race at that point. Yeah. And so, um, it, that put me pretty far behind, um, way far behind my, uh, my schedule that I, you know, that I thought I was going to be hitting. And so at Rodofu, they, the army guys said, oh, it's maybe four hours until you get to the camp. And as it turned out, the camp was actually a bit further up the trail than any of us expected because um, they couldn't make camp at the first checkpoint where, like on the map. It just was too rocky. And so they had to move up the trail by like three miles. <laughs> and so the first day was a bit longer. That's, that's just messes expect. with your brain. You're like, <laughs> yeah. should I be here? Am I lost? Like right. in, in these mountains? Like, yeah, that, yeah, I that's I just like a the camp at one yeah. point. I was like, where is it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was actually ended up, um, I wasn't the last person to get to the first camp, but I was, um, I was in last place for a while. Um, caught up to one person past him. I was like, Whoa, he's, he's really suffering right now. Yeah. He actually had an army guy who was tailing him was right there with him. And so I kind of was like, he's taken care of. Yeah, I, I kept was, going. Yeah. Um, I had my own army guy who was like <laughs> hanging out with me. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm trying to navigate. Um, the trail was pretty well marked. Yeah. Um, the route was pretty well marked because um, Louis Escobar had uh, the race director. He actually had gone to Bhutan in August and did the whole entire snowman track. Oh, and, wow. like, you spray painted um, blazes yeah. along the trail. And then they went back through a group of the Royal Bhutan's army went back through and marked the trail with yellow flags. Um, maybe a couple weeks. Okay. Three weeks, three weeks before we went and, and ran the race. <laughs> and wow. So it was pretty well marked. Yeah. Um, but it's still, you know, it's kind of this barren landscape and there's a little flag wrapped around a rock sitting on top of another rock. And it's easy to miss sometimes. Cause yeah. And the trails are, you know, like the trails weaving in and out, it's braided, it's all over the place. Yeah. And so if you end up on this like side trail and the flags are over here, you might miss. Yeah. The turn um, or something. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so yeah. what's, what's wow. like the mood around camp night one, you know, like you get in and then what's, how are people feeling? It, are they excited to have the day done like exhausted struggling with any of the altitude stuff like what's that like a lot all of, all it. of the above um, <laughs> yeah everybody everybody was feeling the altitude um there were i'm trying to think how many people ended up dropping on day one there were a few people who dropped like on day one yeah um and then a few of us dropped on day two as well and then a couple of people were actually helicoptered out for health reasons 
from camp two and camp three. And so, yeah, it's, it's serious. It's yeah. serious business, but I have to give a lot of credit to like the Bhutanese government and the way they set this up. They, <laughs> the safety protocols that were in place for this thing were really amazing. Um, they had like this whole uh, like room set up at the army headquarters that was like just there to monitor the runners. And each runner had like a few people assigned to them who were watching us like 24 seven, like watching our spot trackers, like 24 seven. Um, they had army checkpoints all along the way. They had army sweeps that would come through um, after the runners and make sure that there were no runners having issues. And if they were, you know, they were there to help provide yeah. emergency services. They, there was a helicopter um, that was there for emergency evacuations, kind of health evacuations only, you know, they're not going to helicopter out, you know, if I decide to drop on day three, they're because like, I okay. just can't, can't do it, but I'm otherwise healthy. They're not going to come pick me up in a helicopter. Yeah. But if I'm experiencing, you know, symptoms of hate yeah. or haste, um, then yeah, they'll helicopter me out, you know, yeah. um, they, but they, yeah, they, I've never seen a race with so many safety protocols in place they did such an amazing job even like utmb you know they just yeah. it's just it was really amazing well i feel did. like they knew like they know how difficult like the conditions they're putting people in and they're like we have to make sure we're getting people through this safely but i did well, yeah. I, I took that away from your uh blog about this i'm like dang they were legit with safety yeah they did not mess around and I mean, if you think about it, like nobody wants anybody to die out there. No, one. Yeah, like no. that would be really bad, right? Horrible. And, you know, for uh, for Bhutan trying to, you know, bring all this awareness to to climate change and have this event, and like that would be pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> bad PR. Oh, yeah. Horrible <laughs> PR. Know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, and and it's it's super remote, super dangerous. Actually, the the his majesty the king he's actually done the trek like three or four times himself um That's he's a awesome. super avid outdoorsman yeah um mountain biker trekker hiker he he loves all of that stuff which is why he chose to have the race held on the snowman trek that's cool and yeah and so he knew but he knew he he knew how remote it is and how difficult it is to get emergency services out there and yeah yeah so he he wasn't gonna mess around that's amazing well tell me a little bit about day two so i know day two didn't necessarily go the way you probably <laughs> wanted yeah um, but yeah tell me how like what what went into all of that so on day one i arrived at camp after dark um i felt generally like good my blood oxygen levels were at 95 percent I felt good. I, you know, drank some water. I ate some food. I warmed up, um, went to bed and, you know, I was there two hours before the cutoff. Um, and the thing about the cutoffs for this race is every day you have 16 hours to complete the, the, the day. Yeah. Um, if you don't make the cutoff, they pull you from the race. You can't go on. You have to stay at that camp, whatever camp, <laughs> and you have to hike out with the trekking company 
which means you're hiking out with the horses, which means you're not covering a lot of mileage every day. It's not a fast hike out. Yeah. And that could have been up to six or eight days of hiking. (laughs) And so, you know, if you get to camp three and you decide to drop, it's the most remote camp. It's an eight day hike out. You miss, uh, you know, missing your flights, (laughs) missing your flights home. You're, um, you know, using up resources for this group of people, you have limited gear because you only have the gear that's on your back and whatever you left in your drop bag for that camp. And so limited gear, limited food, limited resources, um, a long hike out. And, you know, that was like, that, that information was given to us long before we started the race, but on at camp one, you know, Brian comes up to me and he's like, Ashley, I just have to say, because you were one of the last people in, um, you know, the last four people in, I just have to talk to you and let you know, if you don't make the cutoff in any of the next days, you have to hike out. And I was like, yes, I'm aware. I'm aware. And I was like, no, I can do it. I, I feel good. I feel really good. I can do it. Then I start, I'm like, but maybe I should really think about my decision here. Yeah. Because I don't really want to get stuck out at camp three or camp two or camp four. Um, But um, so I was kind of like, well, let me sleep on it and see how I feel in the morning. Got up in the morning, packed my bag. I'm going like, this is it. Started thinking about it. And I'm like, well, okay, let's see how I feel as I climb this next pass up to 17,000 feet. See how I feel, see how I'm moving and then kind of make a decision there. Yeah. Whether or not I want to continue. I talked to Brian about it and he was like, that's okay. Just don't go too far. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I was like, okay, great. Start off the day. It starts with like super, super steep climb. And then you sort of like go through this basin. Um, and then another super steep climb up to the pass. And as I was going up that, that climb up to the pass, I'm watching my, my average mileage splits and I'm going, I don't think I'm actually going fast enough to make it through day three. So day two, day two, you get up to that like pass and it's like all downhill from there. And then another short climb at the end. Day two, I was like, I can handle that. That I know I can get through within the time allotted. Yeah. Day three though, was the hardest day where you go, they went almost 30 miles you go up to an elevation of almost 18,000 feet. And the first like 20 plus miles is a steady climb. Yeah. And so I'm looking at my splits going, I know I have to average like, I don't remember what it was, 37 minute miles. Yeah. In order to, you know, make it through day three and make the cutoff. And I'm looking at my splits going, I'm going like 42 minutes per mile going up this one little steep pass right now. If I do that all day long on day three, I'm not going to make the cutoff and I'm stuck at that camp. Yeah. And so I was like, what do, what do I do? Well, I'm not really willing to get stuck at camp on day three. And so I stood at the top of the pass on day two and talked it out with my friend, Emily, who kind of, she already knew what was going on. She um, was one of the other runners. We had traveled together. Um, she was my friend prior to this and one of the athletes that happened to get invited. And so we 
you know, we were tent mates, we were roommates the entire time. And I talked it through with her and, you know, she's so optimistic and she's like, Ashley, I know you can make it. I'll stay with you. And I'm like, I'm not going to hold you back for one. And two, I'm not that optimistic about day three. Like, I know I can make it through. I know I can do the mileage. I know I can handle the elevation. I don't know if I can do it fast enough though. And so ultimately, um, instead of, you know, using up resources and potentially putting myself in some kind of danger, I decided to turn around at that pass. And I went back to camp one, um, along with two other athletes, actually, um, the three of us decided to turn around right there. And it, it was a hard decision. And I definitely wrestled with that decision for a long time because I've never dropped from a race. Well, I've never, I've never DNF'd a organized race. Yeah, There's been plenty of fastest known time attempts that I've just, you know, spent myself. I'm done. I can't go and I can't move anymore. Um, quit. But I've never made the decision to stop when I was still feeling really good overall. Yeah. I was just moving slow, but I felt good. And so I wrestled with that for a long time. And I got, you know, I, I cried while I was walking back to camp with the two other athletes. Um, you know, the three of us kind of commiserated over that for days yeah. because, you know, it's, it's a really hard decision to make. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, ultimately I, I DNF'd on day two. Well, um, it's hard because you're like, I didn't come here to DNF, you know, like, no. you know what I mean? Like that's you in your mind, you're like, I don't know. Cause you like in right, like with space, but between the decision and now, like, do you think you made the right decision? I think so. Yeah. Um, I, cause in so the moment still... it's so hard to make that right decision. Cause there's all these other factors, but once you give it space and think about it, you might be like, yeah, I did. I did do the right thing. That was the smart thing to do. Yeah. And there's definitely a, a part of me that's like, no, I should have kept going because there's, you know, I have that ultra runner mindset where I'm yeah. like, I go until I can't go anymore. And that's the mindset I went into this race with was yeah, I'm the only way I'm going to stop is if I get helicoptered out yeah. or, you know, like <laughs> nothing's going to stop me. Yeah, um, It's going to be health or I'm DNFing because I don't make a cutoff. And I made that decision ahead of time. But then, yeah, to make the decision to actually go into it and kind of be like, wait a second, let's think about this. I'm proud of myself for being able to do that, for being able to stop, set my ego aside and kind of look at the situation and sort of be like, this isn't the place to push myself so far beyond my limits that I put myself in some kind of danger. And, you know, I'm used to doing that. I'm used to pushing beyond my limits. I expected this race to be the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Instead, it was sort of like, yeah, I mean, that was hard. Yeah. But I definitely didn't destroy myself. I've done, I've done harder things. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so it, it's weird to go into it with a certain mindset and then come out with a different mindset. And, but yeah, I do think I made the right decision. And the Himalayas, it's not a place to be pushing <laughs> yeah. yourself beyond your limits. You know, you have to, you have to be able to think about things with a, 
a critical mindset. And there should be like an asterisk next to the DNF and it should just say Himalayas. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <I know. laughs> like, well, okay. So that's the thing about it too, right? I so Ian Sharman, who's yeah. like world-renowned ultra, yeah. right? Like amazing human, amazing runner. Um he's done tons of stuff at altitude. Like he's, he's won Leadville four times. Like you know, pretty accomplished guy. He knows what he's doing. He decided to drop on day one. He finished yeah. day one and then he was like, I'm done. He, he'd had some like chest cold thing, um, a couple of weeks prior and just like, wasn't super ready for the elevation. So he was experiencing some pretty nasty elevation. Uh, not, he wasn't too sick, but his, his oxygen levels were like 70% or something like crazy okay. low. And so he was like, okay, I'm done on day one. So I get back to camp on day two and I'm like sitting there in a lawn chair, which is kind of funny because we're way out there in the middle of nowhere and there's like lawn chairs. <laughs> I'm like sitting in this chair, staring at the mountains. I'm like mad at myself. Yeah. And Ian Sharman comes out he sits next to me and he's like, DNFs happen. Yeah. Like they're really normal. And he goes, it's a good thing you chose the toughest race in the world to DNF at, you know, like besides look at where we are. It was kind yeah. of like this. Oh yeah. You know, like first of all, I'm sitting next to Ian Sharman and he's, he also DNF'd and he's giving me life advice about DNFing. Yeah. And second of all, <laughs> look at where I'm at. Like yeah. I got invited to the toughest race in the world because of who I am as an athlete. And exactly. I get to also sit here and look at these amazing mountains and think about like where I'm at and how I got here. And, um, it's, it was, it was kind of a profound experience. Yeah. Yeah. After, um, so kind of after returning back, like did all the racers get back together at a certain point, like afterwards? Yeah. Yeah. So those of us, um, who DNF'd at, camp one or, or like partway through day two, we went yeah. back to camp one. We hiked out. Um, we stayed the night there that night and then hiked out the next day back to the start. Um, and then we, like, we almost immediately drove to the finish line. Um, because by that time that was day three, when we hiked out, we drove to the finish line on day four gotcha. so that we could be there for the finishers. And then the people who were maybe like helicoptered out for health reasons, they made their way to the finish line. So gotcha. we were all back together at the finish line, minus one person um, who had to leave um, the country early. Yeah. Um, so we were all back at the finish line together and got to, you know, celebrate together and experience the finish line together. And that's cool. Of course, there was like tons of ceremony at the finish line. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was wonderful. That's cool. Well, so um, having followed like your race and then also your friend Emily's race a little bit um, and not to have you like share her story or whatever, because I know she had her own personal adventures out there. Um, but, you know, seeing other racers who got like hate or whatever or, you know, high altitude pulmonary edema or other things that kind of took them out. Was it, I mean, did it live up to the hype of like, in that sense of like it being a really difficult challenge, did it live up to the hype of like, 
the altitude doing a stage race just seems crazy. You know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how yeah. else to put that question. I know yeah. I followed Emily's story uh, on like while you all were out there doing the race and it was like it like her story kind of moved me a little bit because i know she had to get pulled um and she probably didn't want to and she did not want to <laughs> yeah and like that's the thing about this sport that really like i mean there's many things about ultra running that inspire me but when you see someone pushing and it's difficult and then it just doesn't happen for xyz like like ian Char like he said like they just happen sometimes like sometimes there are factors you can't really control you know like yeah. i don't know i don't know how yeah. that's not really a question but <laughs> <laughs> well altitude affects everybody differently and it affects everybody differently at different times so like i you know might be able to go up into the high mountains you know one day and be totally fine and then you know a few months later i'm gonna go yeah, I was I was totally fine on Aconcagua. I'm gonna go yeah. climb Pico de Orizaba. Yeah. And you know, then suddenly I have hate or haste or something yeah. like that. It's not it's not the same every single time. Just because you're okay at altitude one time doesn't mean you're going to be okay at altitude the next time. And it can change drastically quickly. And I think that's kind of what happened to Emily. She, you know, she was eating well, she was drinking, she was sleeping well, but then uh the morning of the start of day four um the doctor checked her and they said you can't continue you have some fluid in your lungs and so the decision was made there was no argument yeah, nothing you can do then yeah there was a doctor at every single camp and so what you know once the doctor makes that decision you don't argue you just have to go with it and so they ended up calling a helicopter in and helicoptered her out um, oh wow i didn't know she got helicoptered out i didn't know she was the yeah. one where that happened yeah that happened to a few people um one person it was like dehydration and vomiting and then another person it was you know uh some early maybe maybe early signs of cerebral edema like some um eyesight problems and dizziness and stuff like that and then um yeah, just altitude sickness got most people uh, who who withdrew. What's crazy though is that none of the Bhutanese athletes DNF'd. Every single one finished. They were incredible, like really incredible out there. Do you think that had anything to do with them feeling this extra like ownership almost over the race? I don't know. I think so. There, I think there was actually, they felt a lot of pressure um, to perform because for them, it's not just like a personal endeavor. It's not yeah. just a race. Yeah. You know, this is about national pride. This is about making, you know, their families proud. They, they were not going to DNF unless somebody forced them to. Um, there was, I think they were a bit more competitive. <laughs> than most of the international athletes um but the the point of national pride was a huge huge thing for them um they were they were not going to let their country down kind of to wrap up just what was one like huge takeaway 
that you're bringing home with you from this whole entire thing? You know, it's, it's interesting because when we all gathered at the airport in Bangkok on our way to Paro, Louis Escobar, the race director, looked at all of us and he said, this isn't about you. Mm. And that kind of really stuck with me throughout the whole entire thing. This isn't about you. Like a lot of what I do and what we do as humans, it's like not necessarily about us. Maybe it shouldn't be all about us. It should be about the collective. It should be about doing good in the world. And um, so that was definitely a huge takeaway for me. Um, but it, it, it kind of opened up my heart and my mind to not just different cultures, but just everything. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> it was, it, the whole experience was so profound from, yeah. you know, the arrival to the race, to being par- a part of, you know, this culture, um, you know, the, the Royal Highland Festival, that was a huge thing for me and seeing how people live there and, and how they, you know, experience life and their belief systems and, and all of that. Um, it's just really eye-opening. Yeah. Um, but from a, a race specific um, standpoint, my biggest takeaway is, you know, to make, de- make decisions for yourself. Um, I, I think it's easy for us to let expectations rule over our decision-making when it comes to things like DNFs, whether or not to continue to push ourselves beyond maybe what, what we should (laughs) push ourselves beyond and, um, to kind of strip away those expectations and make a decision for yourself. It's probably the best thing that you can do. Um, especially on big adventures like that. I mean, I think that they, yes, you should be able to push yourself beyond your comfort zone. I think that's really important. I think it's important to, um, to be able to do that and learn from it because, you know, we don't learn anything unless we make ourselves uncomfortable. Um, you know, it's that discomfort that we're learning from. It's where we learn who we are, learn where we learn, you know, what we do as people. And, um, one of the things that Jason actually says frequently that he got from a, a old mentor of his is, you know, humans are like a tube of toothpaste. You find out what's inside them when they're squeezed. And I think it's important <laughs> to find out what's inside you. Yeah. I, you know, I, under pressure. Um, but I also realize that in certain instances, you really have to see things as a whole and make decisions um, based off of, you know, the information that you're given and, and the possible outcomes. And, and that's where my decision-making came from in this event. Um, I don't know if any of that makes sense. No, (laughs) it totally does. Oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. And I think also something that we all struggle with, um, is once you make the decision, just letting it go. Like you, you know, either like you made the decision, there's no sense. I mean, it's important to learn from the decision that you made but like i don't know because i've made decisions in the past and then you like stick like your emotions are still attached to it and you're like oh man like oh man maybe i shouldn't have done that and you're still like pondering it and it's like kind of like what's the point of 
dwelling on it, I already made the decision. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean because we do we do tend to dwell on it. And yeah. I I know some of the other runners who made a decision to drop um were dwelling on it. Yeah. To the point where they, you know, they were angry. And yeah, yeah I, I mean, I was angry with myself too because I was like, this wasn't my plan. Yeah. Um, but then looking back on it, I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, I can't change it now. Yeah. For one. So I have to accept the outcome. I yeah. have to accept my decision. But two, now, okay, so I'm going to look at this with a critical eye. I'm going to reflect on it and I'm going to decide why did I make that decision? Was it the right decision? And what can I do different in the future? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it's like that for any, you know, quote unquote failure. Um, it's a great opportunity to learn. And so even if I wasn't happy with my decision, I can still reflect on it and go, okay, well, let's figure this out. Like, yeah. what can I do different in the future? Yeah. Um, you know, how can I change things? How can I do better? How can I train better? How can I prepare better? How can I make sure that I'm not questioning my ability, um, you know, three or four days into a five day stage race? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's very normal to DNF or fail at something, but then you have to be able to look at it with a critical eye. Um, you know, feel the feelings. Yeah. I mean, you're going to be angry. You're going to be upset. I was sad. I was, you know, kind of disappointed in myself. Um, and then, yeah, okay. I felt the feelings. I'm going to set those aside now. And now I'm going to look at, you know, why, Yeah. what am I doing? What can I do different? Um, and that's hard for people to do, to set those feelings aside. Cause there's a lot of like shame and embarrassment that gets attached to those things. Um, so, you know, DNFs are failure in general, and we're not taught as a culture here, <laughs> how to deal with those feelings very well. And so we just latch on them. We get angry. Yeah. And I think that, you know, letting that anger go kind of recognizing, like, I feel shameful because of this sort of puts it in perspective and then you can set that aside. Yeah. Um, and then you can really look at it. And that's where, that's where the learning happens. That's where, um, you know, the lesson is. Dude, I'm totally just clipping that and playing it for my seventh graders. <laughs> <laughs> my whole lesson this week is like intentionally making my leadership class fail at stuff um, on purpose. So they become okay with it. I'm like, if you Whoa. guys didn't become okay with this, this is totally a superpower. And uh, yeah, so anyways, I'm clipping that for sure and like playing that form because that's perfect because you're right. Like there is like almost like two levels of the failure where one is you're still emotionally attached to it and it's really hard to learn from it. But then once you let those emotions go, that's when you can make the like gains or whatever you're looking for there. Yeah. And when I'm like making it clear that, you know, feeling those emotions is fine. Yeah, like, totally. You're, you're going to feel yeah. upset. Nobody wants to fail. We all want to be successful, right? <laughs> we don't want to accomplish what we set out to do. Yeah. But also failure happens. It's normal. And we get emotional over it. Okay. Feel the emotions. Move on. Yeah. That's amazing. Awesome. Ashley, you're amazing. We only got through like half of my notes. So um, <laughs> I would be honored to have you back on the podcast. Um, I do want you uh, 
to let everyone know, like, where can they follow your adventures? You host a podcast uh, called Women of the Wild. Um, yeah, where can everyone kind of like follow along your journey? Yeah, um, so I'm, as far as social media goes, I'm mostly an Instagram user, um, ashley.winchester, and Ashley is spelled A-S-H-L-Y. There's no E. No E. Ashley, no E. <laughs> Ashley. A lot of people mess that up, <laughs> which is fine. Like I totally understand. My name's spelled weird. Um, Ashley. Winchester. Um, or you can find me on Facebook. Um, I'm not as active on there, but I do tend to respond. Um, Ashley Winchester. Same on there. Yeah. Um, and then Women of the Wild is yeah my podcast. I interview women doing cool stuff in the outdoors, um, all sorts of outdoor adventures, and um, yeah, to empower and educate more women, get more women to maybe think about setting some big audacious goals for themselves. That's awesome. And um, yeah, you can find that on uh, Instagram, womenofthewild.pod, or um, I finally got my website up and running, womenofthewild.org. Awesome. O-R-G. That's so um, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a subscriber because... Yeah. Yeah, I'm just I'm all into adventures, you know. I don't know. <laughs> and ultimately that's what it's about is yeah. adventuring. It's yeah, it's it's not it's very women focused, but yeah, I've I've heard from some men who are like, Wow, this is really inspiring. So yeah, yeah totally. it's not just for women. <laughs> no, that's so cool though. Yeah, I think you're doing amazing things. And like I said, I'd be honored to chat with you again at some point. I'd love that. Yeah, it's just super fun. All right, that wraps up this week's episode. Um, I, I really hope to have Ashley back on the show at some point in the future. Um, because like I said, I have a whole nother page of notes. Like I have all sorts of questions about the FKTs she's uh, accomplished and the other adventures that she's done, what she's learned by uh, hosting the Women of the Wild podcast and, and things like that. So I'm super psyched. Uh, hopefully we can make that happen again at some point in the future. Um, and I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, I think if you enjoyed like the travel aspect and the experiencing other cultures aspect of that, uh, I think you'd like the episode we did a few weeks ago with Sabrina White, uh, which was, I'm pretty sure I called it when to not have an adventure or something. Uh, I gotta look it up. Hold on. This is me stalling right now while I look up what I titled that episode. Yeah. So it was number 310 with Sabrina. It was called when to abandon an adventure, but really it was kind of focused on the idea of like, what do we learn by travel? What do we learn by exploring people who live different lives than ourselves? You know, I, and I loved, I loved the, the combo of what Sabrina said in that one and what Ashley went through in this one, where basically the idea is like, travel and adventure kind of makes us more um makes us more open to other people's perspectives right like it gives us a new perspective on the possibilities of how we live our lives you know like we kind of even i mean all of us do this where we get stuck in what we're used to what we're comfortable with you know like our day-to-day um comforts that we have and we might not think like, you know, when you're when you're able to understand like, oh, there are people out there that are living differently than me. And you can start to understand their perspective uh, a bit more and, and kind of think about like what issues would be important 
to other people on their day to day and um, and how might they go about their lives um, in ways that I could take back to my own life and, and lessons I could learn to bring back home for me um, in this like constant exploration of how to be a fulfilled human being. So um, loved it. Loved the episode. Um, really blew my mind. I, I've done more, um, you know, kind of looked up more things about the glacier, glacier lake outburst floods. And I think that kind of blew my mind because that was something I never even considered. Um, obviously, I, I actually got to see my first glacier this summer uh, when we went up to Iceland. I mean, like true, like massive behemoth glacier. I'd never seen one. I've been a science teacher this whole time. And we obviously talk about glaciers a lot um, in geology and all that stuff. But once you see one and you just realize the power of this thing, like it is almost indescribable how massive a true glacier is. And when you go like even in Iceland, we went and um, the one that we saw, which I, I can't name because I'll totally mess it up and sound stupid. <laughs> but it's one of Iceland's like huge glaciers kind of on the southern part of it. Um, even that one, though, it looked, you know, mind baffling, gigantic to me. Uh, that one had receded so much, you know, um, I think. It said since like in 1930, this one was 820 feet from the ocean, right from the edge of the ocean. And now it's like 4.3 to five miles from the ocean. It's receded that much. And in its wake, it leaves these giant lakes uh, with icebergs and things like that. And that was my first experience with the glacier. And then to hear Ashley talk about the glacier lake outburst floods, I didn't even think about it. But yeah, like you're adding a massive lake to this ecosystem that isn't used to having a massive lake there and then all of a sudden there comes a tipping point where it's just going to burst out and um even if they've built dams at a certain point if if that glacier is melting it's going to fill up that lake so much it's going to put an extraordinary amount of pressure on the dams and then everything downstream from that you know it's just it's just random whether or not the villages downstream are going to be there or not depending on where the water is going and uh sounds like a massive crisis uh for bhutan um and the people who live there and for ashley to get firsthand experience visiting and living with and um getting to know the people who live there it makes it it makes it seem like more real thing right like we hear about things on the news all the time and to the point where sometimes it kind of like numbs us because there's just constant news coming in and constant crises and things and all that but when you meet someone who's been personally affected or in the future could be personally affected by these things that kind of like completely changes your perspective so hopefully by having her on and having you guys listen to that it kind of at least brings an awareness um to a problem that is a very real thing so um so yeah so anyways i really enjoyed the episode from multiple aspects and i hope you guys did too and uh yeah next week we'll be coming back at you i have a couple really good ones recorded i'm excited to share them and uh yeah we'll get back at you then